This episode is dedicated to Raf, Sean Donahue, Michael Alden, and Ahmed Mahmoud for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. The Southpaw podcast and project is supported entirely by listeners like you. If you want to support the work that we do, please leave us a five star review wherever you listen. Share these episodes, follow us on social media. If you're a new listener, make sure to click subscribe. And if you really want to support this project, then become a paid monthly subscriber on patreon.com slash southpawpod. If you head over to Patreon and subscribe for just $4 a month, you will get immediate access to our complete catalog of bonus episodes, videos, and articles. The more supporters we have, the more time we can dedicate to the show, which means more bonuses, such as classic fight commentary, transcripts of interviews, building a liberation martial arts online curriculum, and most important of all, hire and pay for staff. If you can't support us monthly, you can also do one-time donations at co-fi.com slash southpawpod. We also have t-shirts and sweatshirts to not only flex the show, but your own moral compass. By supporting us, you're not only helping us grow, you're also helping us stay and keep this project running. We can't exist without your support. Thank you. This is Sam. This is Jason. And this is Fight Study. Jason Sargas has been involved in all aspects of mixed martial arts, from coaching and managing fighters, to promoting MMA events, scouting, and matchmaking. This conversation with Jason went well over two hours, discussing gym stories, how the UFC has their tentacles even in fight camps and management, the impact of USADA, Jason's thoughts on MMA techniques and strategies, as well as previewing some of the fights from UFC 262. Jason also gave us his thoughts on Kamaru Usman and Jorge Masvidal, Dominic Reyes and Yuri Prohaska, along with giving us his coach's perspective on Prohaska, and comparing his skill set to John Jones, and how they match up. You can listen to the first part now. Part 2 of this conversation will be on Patreon and Ko-Fi. Today on Southpaw Fight Study, we've brought on boxing and MMA coach and Maverick MMA matchmaker, Jason Sargas, to help us not only preview some of the fights for UFC 262, but also to talk to us about two other recent fights, Kamaru Usman versus Jorge Masvidal 2 and Dominic Reyes versus Yuri Prohaska. Thank you for being on the show, Jason. Sam, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Not only as a coach, but also as a matchmaker, you probably have to look at fighter strengths and weaknesses all the time. Absolutely. Sort of the juxtaposition between uh, what they do well and um, what what some of their vulnerabilities are and how those might match up in terms of um, if you're looking to develop a fighter or at the same time, if you're looking to put on um, a show with the highest level of of performance from both athletes that really is going to be fan friendly. So it's almost like uh, similar skills, but you're looking at it from two different intentions. 
from the matchmaker's perspective, it might be more about anything between equally matched people or just fun style matchups. Whereas as a coach, you're more interested in having matchups where your fighter's strengths might exploit the other fighter's weaknesses. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's a saying in the fight game where it's easy to be brave with another man's blood. <laughs> and right. And as a, as a coach, um, you know, there are some, some fights early that you can possibly recognize that, um, that would be great if you win, but from the, the athlete's longevity, for the athlete's longevity and developmental perspective, you get a few of those wars early. Um, like depending on the age of the fighter, his fight style, um, you know, the by the time they make it to whatever you consider the big show, they're gonna they're gonna have some miles on them. So there is a developmental perspective and a, a progression that's important to consider when moving some of these fighters. I think you told me you work more with boxers now than MMA fighters. What led to that? Um, it, without getting too political, it's um, it can be a bit of a, a toxic and overly caustic environment in mixed martial arts. So um, I just needed a bit of a reprieve. I moved away from it, and um, you know, boxing certainly has its flaws. But it's a little more transparent and um, not less monopolistic, um, and uh, you know, for for a group of individuals in the MMA game that love to tout themselves um, as like free thinkers, pulling themselves up by the, their bootstraps, they they really curry favor with with the almighty UFC above all else, and and that's not really my style. So. They're both touted as independent contractors or you work for yourself, whether it's boxing or MMA, but they look very much different when you're actually in the fight game and how much control a boxer has over their career versus how much control an MMA fighter has over their career. Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt, with maybe the exception of, of Conor McGregor, um, the, the UFC has commoditized uh, the fight game. You know, especially with the advent of the Dana White Contender Series. And they are not looking for the best technical fighters, um, even from an athletic perspective. They are looking for easily reproducible, bite-down-on-your-mouth piece, throw and throw hard, throw caution to the wind, fighters fight mentality, so that, one, uh, their payment, based on that ability to be so easily replicated, will drive down their market value because there's another guy and you see it all the time fighters that say i just want to fight i'm not even worried about pay well that's because you can't command a premium because you're not that great if you really were you would say to the ufc immediately like i demand my market value and the payment becomes the little bit of prestige that comes with going to the big show and if you're a 15 fight pro and you get caught up to the UFC and they offer you 10 and 10 or 12 and 12, or I don't know what it is now, but I believe when Frivola, Matt Frivola won the contender series, I think he won 10 and 10 and then it was 12 and 12 for his first fight, maybe a little less than that. Um, if you really think you're a top tier prospect, um, that's garbage money. It really is. And then in boxing, there's something called money on the table. And if they believe that you can put that many, that many 
butts in seats and sell that many pay-per-views or that you are an eventual world championship caliber athlete, there will be an investment into you. And it almost seems to me like the fighters are constantly investing into the production of the UFC instead of it being the other way around. And I think recently they weren't even signing contender series fighters who had won. So a lot of them were coming over short notice from the contender series still on their contender series contract. So that means they were getting paid not even 10,000 to show 10,000 to fight, but like much less than that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's problematic. But again, it goes to the you've created a commodity in fighters that like in lieu of payment, they will accept whatever many prestige they have because they are not blue chip um, a grade prospects much of the time. And even speaking about Conor McGregor, even though he has much more clout than other MMA fighters, you compare him to, let's say, Canelo, who would be the biggest name in boxing right now. And he has much more control over himself. Yeah, right. That, that's the nature of the game. And that's how the UFC has continued to play it. And so long as uh, the, the UFC um, has so many established company, company men um, pushing the same narrative and, uh, you know, sort of kowtowing to, to Dana White and the powers that be, then there, nothing's going to change anytime soon. I mean, from, from like a despicable um, corporate monopolistic unfettered capitalist perspective, it's absolutely genius the way they've done it. Um, for humanity's sake, I think it, it's like the end of us all. Right? <laughs> so like, I'm not saying there's not some brilliance behind their malevolence, but um, it's malevolent nonetheless. Now tell us about yourself, your own background, and some of the fighters you've helped. Well, I, I, I wrestled from the time I was seven years old. Um, I won a junior Olympic state title when I was 12. So it was wrestling before boxing? Yeah. Yep. I started boxing at about 12 and 13 because I started having some severe neck and back issues even even before I was 13 years old. Some scoliosis and, uh, and an autoimmune uh, situation called akindalosing spondylosis which is like premature, uh, premature arthritis of the, the spine. And, and so it was a little, like, I still wrestle. I wrestled through college, um, you know, against like, everybody's, uh, uh, no one thought it was a great idea. And I wasn't like, I wasn't going to do, uh, great things in college, but it was, a, uh, it was that young, dumb, overly aggressive, like I proved something to myself, bullshit that just cost me my my cervical spine and uh shoulder replacement so two uh a disc replacement surgery at 33 and shoulder replacement surgery at 41 so before <laughs> i was even 42 years old i was i was having two joints replaced so i figure at, at some point i better take my boxing knowledge my my wrestling knowledge and uh, parlay that into some sort of coaching career because the the corporate world was going to fire me eventually for as much time as I spent on YouTube watching <laughs> watching fight videos and, and Jack Slack and, <laughs> and the like. What did you enjoy more then, boxing or wrestling? Um, I loved wrestling because it was it was so so tactile. You know, I get I get my hands on you. Um, I liked boxing too because of the the problem solving um, that it entailed it because it was so. Uh, uh, visually oriented in reaction time oriented. So you had to have like a, a different set of reflexes um, 
and like, eh, your synaptic responses were kind of tied to your eyes as opposed to like your hands and head and then that kind of tactile proprioceptive awareness. And what area were you growing up in where you were boxing and wrestling? Western Pennsylvania, um, right outside of Pittsburgh. That's a pretty, pretty solid, pretty solid wrestling area. Some of the better wrestling in the country came out of there. It's incredible how Pennsylvania has had so many good boxers and wrestlers come out of there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Whether it's Eastern PA or Western PA, it is, uh, it is fighter heavy, whether it's boxing or wrestling. Well, now also a lot of good MMA fighters and Muay Thai fighters as well. Yeah. It's a gritty uh, blue collar town. And there's, there's a bit of, of transparency where, hey, like the, the good guys are going to fight each other. It isn't these, I mean, it's sort of, there's been a shift lately with these super teams and like the, the, everyone wants to be part of Henzo Grace, you know, and no one wants to fight each other because it becomes the most expedient route to the UFC. But I think Western PA has resisted that quite a bit. Um, and you haven't seen sort of these, uh, we'll call them MMA and boxing, or not even boxing, but MMA conglomerate schools where they combine with other, en- with other entities under one umbrella. Um, they they like to throw down, and it, it, they bring that that amateur wrestling, amateur boxing. Let's have a tournament and see who the goddamn best fighter around or the goddamn best wrestler is, and we will see. We'll enter a tournament, and we'll see who comes out on top. And if I don't beat you this year, or someone upsets me and I don't see you, then I'll see you next year, and I'll enter that tournament again. That kind of mindset isn't in MMA. It is not. It's nowhere close. And that to me, I find that the most disappointing. And who are some of the fighters that you've worked with? Uh, Paul Felder, obviously. I name drop him probably a little bit too much, given uh, <laughs> given how long it's been since I've worked with him. But his first five pro fights were were um, under the Brazen Boxing and MMA banner. Um, I scouted him whenever he beat up uh, a fighter that in the amateurs that we thought was pretty good, um, and I saw the way he he and his team approached it. And uh, it just made sense that if, you know, um, my wife and I were going to open a gym and a sports agency that we reach out to, honestly, what we felt was, even with Eddie Alvarez um, making his name at the time, I knew it was just a matter of time before uh, Felder was one of the best and brightest at 155 pounds in the entire world. So he's one. Um, Matt Frivola has been the most recent over at Longo and Weidman's. I was there. I, I was in his corner for um, his uh, UFC debut against Polar Reyes. Um, and I was also in his corner for the contender series when he fought uh, Flores, the, the tough southpaw kid. Um, yeah, so I worked with him. Gabriel Rosado in boxing, two-time world title contender, um, does some acting. Rosado has been in there with uh, Triple G. He's been in there with uh, Peter Quillen, uh, Danny, um, Danny Jacobs. I'm sorry, Danny Jacobs. And Jason Sosa, who is a multiple-time world champion, who's been in there with uh, Lomachenko, uh, uh, Nicholas Walters, uh, some other real good guys. He was a world champion. So I've, I've worked with some guys across the board. There's, there's some other guys you wouldn't know that if they were – I guess a little tougher, maybe not so light on the left side. Uh, athletically, these guys would have been some of the best in the world if they stuck with it. And also because of uh, where you're from, even if they're not names to us, 
just because the local scene is so tough, they might be very well known in that region. Oh, yeah. Right. Um, and this is a, a bad example because he's a star now and everyone knows his name. But so I'm in I'm in California now. But b- before when I was in um, I grew up in Pittsburgh in the, the greater Pittsburgh area. And then I, I lived in Philadelphia for seven years. But it took me about, I don't know, 45 seconds of watching Cody Garbrandt fight before I knew he would be in the UFC. You know, I, I watched him on, on the regional show. Shane Burgos is another one whenever, he, he, again, on the other side um, of Pennsylvania, of watching him. Like, if you had any doubt after he submitted uh, Bill Algio that he was going to be in the UFC, that's back in 2014. Like, there were guys in, in, in the UFC then that these guys would have absolutely steamrolled. So if you have an eye for fight dynamics um, and you can suspend that um, that bias of name recognition, you can really go into it with an un- unbiased unbiased uh, viewpoint or point of view. Then you, yeah, you can absolutely see who these talented individuals are. And I knew I knew Cody Garbrandt was going to. We we had a guy signed to fight him. Um, and I'll admit it from a coaching and management perspective, like we took that fight. But we had never, I never intended to, to follow through with it. I just used it so that we can make another fight. Um, we'll give you this one. We'll give you that one. But then, you know, my guy, uh, his, let's just say his hamstring wasn't where it needed to be for that fight. It was a bad fight. It was a bad fight for us. And Co- Cody uh, was and absolutely is a killer. So it was in, it was in my guy's best interest that we, we sit that one out. Yeah, the Northeast MMA scene, even for hardcore fans who pay attention to prospects and regional fighters, the Northeast scene was known because even like Uriah Hall and Chris Wyman were fighting in that scene back in the day before they were even the UFC. And those are like the top guys over there. And you had other top guys like that, that were the top guys that hardcores knew about, but sometimes they just, for whatever reason, didn't make it to the UFC or they made it and they didn't pan out, but just because they don't make it to the UFC doesn't mean they weren't very good. Absolutely. It speaks to that area. Yeah. I mean, there are some absolute studs. The problem is, and again, not to get too much into the politics of it, because I know we want to go more into like analysis, but the best fighters on the planet that aren't with the marquee schools only get noticed. I mean, it's because of the, the nepotism and the favoritism of the relationships of those schools. And when you have that sort of interconnected um, glad handing between man- school management and promotional ownership of the UFC, well, if you start inviting too many outliers in, um, you lose that mechanism of control. And that's, that's my theory anyway. So it, it becomes unfortunate that you know, um, and we'll, we'll bring up uh, Felder as an example. Um, we left on bad terms, but like whether or not I was the best coach in the world or not didn't matter. If I was, and I was the best opportunity to make him better, I wasn't the best opportunity to get him to the UFC. That was connecting with the Gracie clan, and uh, you know, and being moved that way. There are some significant advantages to that. I don't think that's great. Um, I mean, especially me, since <laughs> right, since I was on the wrong side of that. But if you really want the best fighters, um, there needs to be more of a scouting eye and less of a 
nepotism, uh, cult following of whatever a school has those relationships with the UFC. If, if that's the case, then you're going to continue to miss out on, on blue chip talent. And, um, well, I figure that that might be their business model anyway, because blue chip talent is going to command a blue chip price. That does make sense because if you watch a typical UFC fight night show, all the fighters might be out of four different camps. Yeah. Yep. That's pretty much it. You would think that it is a, a, a sport that has grown rapidly enough for um, it not to be so saturated by, by super teams. And I get, the, I get the benefit, and I also get the utility of having some of these great athletes to help you train. But, you know, um, sometimes a, you know, and it depends on the individual, but the, sometimes a smaller team with a greater emphasis on the individual athlete um, and the individual, individual athlete's needs um, are better. It's it, it, certainly it's situational, but um, I think there are some advantages to being with smaller teams. And I, everything in the sport is brand name and name recognition. I get that. But some of the best coaches on the planet you've never heard of and they will never make a dent in the MMA scene. And it's also true in boxing as well. I mean, I can go, I take a trip through Mexico and look at like a half dozen amateur boxing coaches and they would be the best boxing coaches stateside, at least for, for MMA. Um, they would have a learning curve obviously because they're, they're different skill sets. And coaches have even admitted to this, that the top coach of MMA fighters is, often whoever has the strongest Rolodex. Absolutely. No doubt. No doubt. For young people who don't know what a Rolodex is, it just means like <laughs> your list of contacts, all the people you know on your phone. <laughs> yeah, that's it. The, uh, the Rolodex was what it was. So let's start breaking down these fights for UFC 262. And let's first start with talking about Charles Oliveira versus former Bellator champion Michael Chandler for the vacant UFC lightweight title which was vacated by Habib Nurmagomedov. Let me ask you this. Looking at the landscape of the UFC lightweight division, do you think there was anyone to dethrone Nurmagomedov? I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a tall task, right? I mean, he's like a goddamn gorilla. He's so strong. He gets a hold of you, and he's not super chiseled and looking like a man uh, carved out of granite, but you can just see it when he grabs a hold of other strong individuals that they just seem to crumble. Um, guys that I know, guys that I've trained with, guys that I've seen train. So like, it, it's just not some sort of um, abstract, oh, he looks strong compared to so-and-so. Like, I've literally felt some of these guys. And as a guy who walks around between anywhere between 185 and 200 pounds, who wrestled in college, I could tell you that Khabib handles individuals very easily, or at least appears easily. When you add that kind of advantage, that kind of physical advantage that you don't necessarily see, you can see a punch, right? You can't see how strong someone is. I mean, you can in a sense, like whenever if they there are these crazy lifts, but whenever someone just grabs a hold of you and slowly breaks you down, turns your hip and drags you to the ground and you get up and he does it again and it exhausts you and he still seems fresh. His muscle fibers are different, I think. He just grabs you and he puts you on the ground. Yeah, they talk about that whenever you do any grappling sport, whether it's wrestling or Brazilian jiu-jitsu or judo. 
they talk about that grappling strength as being different from gym strength, meaning you can't see it just by looking at the person, how strong they are. Once you get a hold of each other, you could feel how strong they are. No, yeah, and you hear the, the corners going crazy, just shouting, like, push on the head, scoot, push on the <laughs> head, scoot. You know, like My entire body against his two arms means nothing. <laughs> He's just too strong. They can't see it either, right? The corner, they can't feel that strength. So they just look at what they see and they're like, why can't you do this? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, a UFC fighter that I don't think gets credit for how strong they are, because I didn't know, is Jared Gordon, right? Does, I think he, his record might be about 500 in the UFC. But I had a fighter, Johnson Juju, and I cornered against Jared. And I kept saying, like, why are you letting him, why are you letting him pin you against the cage? I need you to bump, get that, clear that underhook, right? Let's pummel inside, bump, pivot, get off the cage. He goes, I can't. I physically can't. And Johnson was incredibly strong. And I, I, so I looked him in the eyes and I said, how strong is he? And he goes, he doesn't look it, but I can't get him fucking off me. <laughs> I ain't. Um, no mean to swear, but I figure I quote it. Um, like he, yeah, he's that strong. Felder's really strong too, but in a different kind of way. He's not going to throw you off of him, but it's like wrestling a, a bronze statue. Like his hips are so tight and strong that you try to pull them together, he just sort of shifts them back like a robot. And uh, that kind of strength doesn't always show through because you're not hitting some sort of like powerful um olympic style movement but the concentric strength is is something too right the ability to hold um and that's what some of these guys got um again going back to abib he's he's an outlier because he's got the concentric and eccentric strength and the the type of muscle fibers that don't seem to severely fatigue under that kind of anaerobic output and if if they do, they recover in between rounds after 60 seconds. And it's, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. By only looking at his defenses, you'll never get a sense of how dominant Nurmagomedov really was. And I think going forward, now that he's retired, future fans won't know by looking at his record. I mean, he retired because there was nobody out there to beat him. And he had already beaten them on the way up. So he is basically he defended a title he didn't have long before he ever got the title. And to your point, I think a lot of it is invisible, not just because his record won't reflect it, but just by looking at him or looking at the way he fights, it's not reflected because it just looks like, why aren't they doing this? Why aren't they doing that? Why aren't they knocking him out? Or why are they backing up? And to the point that you're making, because you're not feeling him. You're not. You're not. When you make easy work of Dustin Poirier, you just squeeze him and it looks like his head's going to pop off his back. That's the best 155 pounder that we have in the world right now. And you just, you just kind of bottle capped his head. Literally could have tore it off his shoulders if you wanted to. And to, I get it. It's not as, as dynamic and it's not as, as athletic and acrobatic as some people would like. But it is a skill nonetheless. And it is, when, it was in, it is within the rules um, and the parameters. And the criteria of the sport is outlined by the UFC and the governing bodies. And if you can't beat them, you can't beat them, right? So stop asking him to change and be more fan-friendly when there is something fan-friendly about being that dominant. And so then you get the haters and you get the crosstalk about, yeah, but if this, no, man, good is good. Um, and it, it, at some point, it needs to be duly recognized. And to your point, 
we think of Habib being this big megastar, mostly because he beat Conor McGregor and also because Dana White wanted him to come back and keep fighting so bad. But you think about how many victories he had to finally get the title shot. And it was because, well, partially because of injuries that he had, but also because Dana White for years said he hated that style. Yeah. Hey, man, you could have made a kickboxing in a cage. <laughs> no one would have had a problem with that, with small gloves. But that's not the sport. And that's why I, I, I don't quite understand the cognitive dissonance that you built a no-holds-barred, anything-goes type of uh, like fighter, um, like fight sport and then get mad if it's implemented that way. I do get the need for certain things, but I'm tired of hearing lay and pray while while the lockdown in the UFC or in the rubber guard exists, right? Like if you're doing nothing but holding on to yourself so that the guy on top of you can't punch you in the face, I don't want to hear complaints about stalling. It's incredibly disingenuous and, and very, it lacks self-awareness. But hey, you know, jujitsu being what it is, jujitsu, jujitsu, give me your money, jujitsu, jujitsu. I, I, I get that, you know, I apologize. I seem a little, little asshole-ish right there, but there's a, there's a, a sort of a group think that goes into jujitsu that tells you like, oh, jujitsu wins fights. Sorry, guys, fighting wins fights. Like that's what wins fights. You can't, you know, you can't, are you going to tell me that, um, you know, tell me that Matt Hughes is a better jujitsu player than Ricardo Almeida because he choked him out with a, a front headlock choke? Are you going to forget the left hook that took place right before that, that clipped uh, that, that clipped Almeida? Because it's it was a fighting sequence. It wasn't a jiu-jitsu sequence. So we start to have this confirmation bias where we look too much. And I've been guilty of it in the past. I was wrestling, boxing, wrestling, boxing, wrestling, boxing. Until I got kicked in the liver. And I'm like, ooh, that's an incomplete skill set. That's rounded out. <laughs> so I, I'd like to see some people move away from that. And now it is this this need for uh, for this just bleed mindset that, again, the more you sell that, the more it commoditizes the, the athlete and the easier they are to reproduce and the less likely they are, they are to ever get paid fairly. That's my economic theory in fighting. Now, going back to the fight, both Oliveira and Chandler are veterans of the sport. But while Chandler has already won world titles at Bellator, Oliveira has been a late bloomer, especially at lightweight. I can only think of RDA and Dustin Poirier as other examples of people who have gotten their first lightweight title shots this deep into their career. So what are your thoughts on Oliveira, his strengths and weaknesses, and what happened that made him a title contender all of a sudden? That's an, that's an outstanding question, right? Because if you, if you look at him, I mean, he's had some, he's had some ups and downs, obviously. But he seems to have righted the ship um, since since he moved up to 155. Um, you know, if you, I think you have to erase that that Paul Felder fight from memory. Uh, for what was that back in 2017? Um, uh, if you're gonna if you're gonna try to make an informed uh, conclusion as to as to how he's developed, I mean, from that point, he's fought Clay Guida, um, got Jim Miller. Tamer, Nick Lentz, Jared Gordon, um, Kevin Lee, Tony Ferguson. And there's always people that are going to – he fought a, a diverse group of fighters with differing skill sets. And, you know, like my question for that was, I mean, 
you can't erase the Felder fight. You know, it is what it is. It was it, he he seemed to have folded after a, a dominant first round. But like I, I don't know if anyone's picked up on this, but you're never going to have an easy out with Felder. So regardless of what Oliveira is able to do, I still think that's a fight he probably loses if he can't get rid of him in the first round again. Like, um, you know, MMA math being as ridiculous as it is, um, I don't think that means that Paul runs through Kevin Lee and Tony Ferguson and some of these other guys. He, he may, he may not. Um, but going back to the um, what happened to Oliveira, I think he settled into the weight class a little bit. I think again, I don't know him. Um, I know a coach of his um, from back in the day, but I, I wish I could see him train. I wish I spoke Portuguese. I wish I had a better understanding of him. Um, from an a intellectual and a psychological perspective, because something has changed. It isn't just that Kevin Lee is a little bit weathered or Tony Ferguson is worse for the wear. He's improved and he's made, he's made some adjustments against some very tough guys. And I can't quite put my finger on it, but I would like to do some sort of historical data, uh, <laughs> some sad analysis based on that historical data. Because if that's ever reproducible, there are some good guys that I've seen that, that couldn't get it together mentally. If you can find a way to to right that ship, flip that switch, whatever cliche you want to throw in there, then you know the, the guys like Charles Oliveira are like, they're bright spots on the sport from a well-rounded skill set, entertaining perspective. You can't commoditize him. His jujitsu is is a plus plus. His um, his wrestling has improved. I think he's strong for a skinny guy. Um, and his fight IQ and his, his striking, all of it has improved. Even where one thing I think he doesn't quite get the credit for and that has started to develop is I don't think he likes to get hit that much. So with that, over over the years, like since the Will Brooks fight, I've seen an improvement in his defensive fundamentals, striking on the feet, a big improvement. A lot of that is conditioning too because you're not going to be as, as reactive to stimuli when you're fatigued. When you're that fatigued, your body and brain are like, hey man, go sit down, please. Like, we don't want to be here anymore. So I think as his conditioning improves, um, he's been able to kind of right that ship mentally. And with that kind of, call it defensive responsibility or improved technical acumen, he's been able to, to, to not get hit with big stuff, still be able to get in people's face enough to implement the style of fight that, that he wants. And, and maybe it's a comfort thing. Maybe it took a while to get there, but no, I wish I knew the recipe for that success. Cause I would, uh, I would try to reproduce it and I'd retire next year. <laughs> a note to our loyal listeners. If you love the show, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by joining team Southpaw on Patreon by becoming a member You'll get access to bonus content like exclusive articles, fight previews, bonus episodes, transcripts of fight studies, and access to our private chat group on Discord. But more importantly, you'll help us supplement the cost of the show, the incredible time and energy Sam and I put into making the show, and you'll be giving us some breathing room not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod.
Yeah, that kind of late bloomer renaissance is something more you see in heavyweight or maybe even light heavyweight. The heavier you go, you see older fighters succeeding. But the lighter you go, it is very much a young person's game. So this is very, very unusual. I would just add to that that I remember early Charles Oliveira, he was really bad at taking people down. You would see him more just die for a takedown. And if they fell over, it would be more like he would try to get you in the scramble or he would end up on his back and try to get you anyway. It looked very much like the dives that Wilson Hayes used to do where he didn't care. The way he shot, he didn't care if he ended up on top or bottom. He just wanted to engage you. Sort of like uh, even uh, Haniea, he does that still. But now he can wrestle and take down better wrestlers than him or quote unquote better wrestlers, right? People who should be better wrestlers on paper, but he's taking people down more. No, I think that's a great point. And that's an excellent observation. He had that little wizard toss that you would see him hit every once in a while, Uchimata or whatever you want to call it. Um, and he would have like some, some slop takedowns off some scrambles. Um, but he was the type of guy that, again, like you said, he would he would sort of dive bomb and spam some stuff. And if he landed on top, great. If not, he'd try to submit you off his back. He used to pull guard also too. Yeah, right? And again, I think that had to do with a little bit of, of fatigue at times as well. Um, but now in, in, he's also excellent off his back. But but you're seeing his body lock takedown, right? He hits this, he hits it without this this Polish hop step that that I that I hit it with and sort of some of the the other guys that do this little foot switch where they, they slide the, the foot to the opposite foot and then they, they kind of jump and land heavy on that back foot trapping the hip and the leg. He hits it. Again, this is why I think he might be very physically strong. Um, and it's a conversation I'd like to have with some of the guys that fought him. Um, when he gets to that position, guys who have strong hips, guys who are very difficult to take down, guys who have wrestled for a long time, seem to fold pretty quickly when he gets to that body lock position. And I don't know if it's just a matter of mastering that technique later in life, because it's not the hardest technique to master. Um, but I mean, there is there is some positional awareness and some strength that goes along with it. So uh, I think that's an excellent observation. And I would like to know sort of the 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 genesis, the genesis, the genesis and the progression involved into getting to that point. You know, those are these are like little new wrinkles that he's added to his game. That I you don't want him. I call him a skinny guy because he's like what five eleven and he's pretty sinewy, but he looks like he weighs a million pounds when he's when he's on top of someone inside control. There's also something unique about his career that I've never gotten an answer to that the UFC hasn't really addressed. And when I say the UFC, I mean the commentators, which is that when he first got to the UFC. He weighed around 150. So when he would weigh in, he would be 150. He would be like 149, 150. He was always around five or six pounds under the 155 weight class division. So he would be so skinny compared to his opponents. And he would be able to match them with strength. But something that plagued him for a while was his cardio. He would just start getting tired. And then what was weird was then he moved down to 145, which you thought would be the perfect weight class because he was always underweight. And then he kept missing weight. Get missing weight and coming in at like 151, which was heavier than he was weighing at when he was fighting at 55. Yes. Yeah, so you remember this. So I didn't understand. And then he went back to 155, but now he like filled out 155. So he must be walking around well above that because he's cutting down to 155 now. So something happened with his conditioning where he 
felt he was strong, but he didn't have the mass and he didn't have the cardio, then he filled out. I mean, he came in as an adult, but I don't know how young he was. Oh, he was young. He was like, I think he was 20. He was 20 or 21 because he's only 31. He's only 31 now. So he's had like close to a decade. And so he's been in the UFC since 2010. So I think part of that is like he filled out and found his adult fighting prime body. I think that, I think that's right. That's my best guess. Um, conditioning. I mean, everyone can talk about heart, but like heart is part of the cardiovascular system. If we're going to, if we're going to put it bluntly, right. And it is really hard once you hit physical exhaustion. Like there's no Rocky Balboa talk from there's no Mickey talk to Rocky Balboa that's going to when you have physiologically hit the wall and you cannot recover. Like there is no superhuman talk when there is no longer any um, any fast twitch firing when you're what where when your ATP stores are so drained. Um, like maybe there's a little bit of fake it till you make it. Keep your hands up. Don't show that that don't show him that you're spent. But if you can't do it, you can't do it, right? And so there was some quit in him, I think, because of that. Now, there are some people that are, are excellent at fighting under duress, like Paul Felder, number one. Like, I've never seen anyone quite like it. Usman, again, is, is another one. Like you, he can get dropped. He gets back to his feet. It is compartmentalized and put away, and he starts fresh keeps his, his eye on the prize and continues to do what he's supposed to do. Every once in a while with Usman, he'll go into a little bit of spaz mode. And with Felder, he'll give it like that mean mug for a second. But the, the times he stopped doing that, he's improved. He become calculated and he got right, gets right back into the fight. So the ability to recover um, is also something that, that I think it's not really talked about that much. And a, a big aspect of that is your conditioning, is your aerobic conditioning is going to be what's going to refuel the other systems, whether anyone wants to believe it, because I know everyone hates steady-state cardio in the MMA game. It's necessary to a degree. It really is. And if you want to make good decisions under duress, um, you're going to have to know that you have the ability to recover. And when we talk about conditioning, we have physical conditioning, and then we have our, our operant conditioning. Right? If you know every time you get into a scramble that you are spent because your physical conditioning isn't there. The operant conditioning says, all right, man, now I need to relax. Then they start to throw single shots. They don't put their foot back on the gas again. They're not as, they're not as offensive. They're not, they're not as aggressive. Part of that, again, is conditioning. If you, so you do, you, you train or you fight how you've trained. So if you can put yourself in a position to keep your foot on that gas, stay aggressive, um, not give them a 10-second gentleman's agreement where we both kind of break off and I don't do anything, you don't do anything. That was a good scramble. I seem to get to get better, but we're back to our feet. When you say, fuck that, let's go again, and the other person doesn't want to, rather than you resting and consider breaking, you can come forward and break the individual across the cage from you or across the ring from you. That kind of conditioning is incredibly important. You know, and that's why some of these pressure fighters who have great conditioning, they are, they're, tr they're troublesome to game plan for, especially if they have a chin. Michael Chandler is someone who's already been to the top of the mountain more than once. So it feels like a fight where we have one fighter entering his prime in Oliveira 
and another fighter who might no longer be in his prime, but still good enough to win another world title in Michael Chandler. So what made Michael Chandler so good? And how much of that do you think he's retained? Um, he's, he's an outstanding athlete. Um, and he comes across as a very informed fighter. He knows what his opponents are doing. He knows his strengths. Um, I think his, his camp, Sanford MMA, and this is my opinion, is whether it gets the credit it deserves, and it does get plenty of credit, but I think it's the best camp in the country. I do. I think the combination of Greg Jones and Henry Hooft, um, uh, the, the wrestling of Greg Jones, who's a three-time national champ, um, the type of athlete who combines the intelligence for the sport with like first-round draft pick, D-back, physical ability, and he was just an amazing athlete. He went to the same college that I went to. I wrestled with his brother, Virtus Jones. And um, I, I think that's, uh, that's an aspect of MMA coaching uh, pedagogy that you don't, you don't really hear about. It's sort of, they have, at least from what I've seen, a, a wrestling drill skill set progressive development and the ability to introduce, acquire, and own new skills as, as well as anyone I've ever seen in the 20-some years that MMA has been a sport. And uh, it, I don't think they get the credit that they deserve. I mean, I think they're, they're top of the food chain. And if you, gave, if you could clone all of ATT and all of AK, AKA's athletes and threw them over to... Uh, to Sanford MMA and did a, like a battle of the best clone versus clone. I, I think Sanford wins it 10 out of 10. <laughs> that's my opinion. But I think that's a big, that's a big part of it. I really, really do. They do seem like old school American kickboxing Academy where they take wrestlers and teach them how to, how to strike. But not only that, so much of it was about like creating this room where they just recruited all the best guys strikers wrestlers and they also had good wrestling and they didn't overcoach it was much more about like free play and put the best guys together give them a couple of new tools every month and trust them to do the rest right except Sanford seems like they're a little bit more polished than that because the problem with aka especially during his heyday was everybody would constantly get hurt everybody was constantly getting injured Cain Velasquez being a great example whereas Sanford seems much better at not breaking their fighters in training. Agreed. Agreed. And I don't know. Um, so when Greg Jones was at WVU, there was, uh, it tended to be an overtraining problem and some guys were getting hurt. Like they were leaving a lot of their, their best days in the gym, a lot of their ACLs as well. So there was an understanding of that, that, that more is not always better. When you, what you saw with AKA, look, I'm not casting any aspersions here. I'm not making um, any judgments or any accusations, but once USADA was added in and a lot of PEDs were out of play, everybody was overtraining in the sport. Everybody. So, like, and strength and conditioning had to change. It needed to be more scientific because you couldn't just throw a bunch. Again, I apologize if this offends anybody, but you couldn't just throw a bunch of drugs, spam it, and say, do this many leg extensions and you're going to be fight ready. Like, it's, it's silly and it's ignorant. Um, there's no science behind it. It's just, you know, it's, and then we can have the argument that everybody's cheating, that it doesn't, okay, if it's, a, if it's an even playing field because everybody's doing it, that's fine. It still means 
that though successful, those techniques are suboptimal. And the second you strip, the second you strip PEDs out of it, you start to see athletes fall apart. That's why I like to see coaches from like uh, college wrestling. You know, they, they, Greg Jones, college wrestler. The, it is, it is governed, there's a governing body that the NCAA is going to test you. So you know training protocols that are designed for the clean athlete. And you get some carryover. So I think that, that lends itself to a, a better uh, uh, um, training environment for, uh, for an MMA athlete. And MMA conditioning is notoriously difficult to train for. Everything is the don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. If you want great cardio, you want to make sure we get, we're still explosive. If you're too explosive, you don't want to make sure you make sure you don't gas out. You want guys whose reflexes are primed, but you don't want to leave, leave all their gray matter and synaptic response time in the gym because they're they've taken a beating. So, I mean, having someone, and I think Henry Hoof and Greg Jones do that as well as anybody. I don't know for a fact. This is just the information I'm able to glean from paying attention to their um, their social media, listening to interviews. Um, but I think they get it as well as anyone in the game. Well, you know, all the top camps pre-USADA are not the same camps that are top right now. I think that's a very interesting change. Yeah, because it, who are the best camps ever? And then who are the best camps um, post-USADA? And there are some guys that if you're just of the mindset that I want to bite down on my mouthpiece and throw and train as hard as I can and I don't believe in overtraining and that kind of silliness, that you may be top of the food chain so long as drugs are still allowed, right? Or at least um, not governed um, as stringently uh, as, as they are now. Uh, so like, who's the best under those rules? Who's the best under USADA rules? And I don't think it's definitely going to be the same. I, it certainly it certainly is not the same. Again, I don't. I know it, someone's going to uh, get mad and say you're making accusations. I believe at one point the sport was ninety percent dirty. Like I would bet both testicles on that man. I'm telling you, like it was one of the dirtiest sports I've ever seen, and it was nothing but trap muscles and back acne. <laughs> That's what a lot of fighters during that era also said. So you're not saying anything that hasn't been said before. Yeah, I know it's everyone's like dirty little secret, but oh yeah, but we know. But it's a they don't say it on a podcast. You know? <laughs> I mean, like, could Michael Bisping have been champion without Usada? I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think I don't think so either. I think he has a working eye without Usada. You mean if Usada came earlier? I do. I really believe that. Um, you know, but he's a company guy now, so all that stuff is forgiven, and he's getting taken care of. And we—that's a whole other conversation. But hey. Good on them if they're if they're doing what they want to do and, and they're happy. But like I have, uh, what do they say? Um, a man of virtue tends to be relatively lonely in a world without any. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, that's why uh, you know that's why I kind of keep it at, at arm's length a little bit more than I used to. Now, what does Oliveira need to do to beat Michael Chandler? He needs to submit him, and he needs to submit him early because. Chandler does not get tired, but what he does do, what he does do when he does, when he does start to go into later rounds is, especially wrestlers, all fighters, but especially wrestlers, wrestlers can 
start to really throw heavy because they're not as worried about the takedown threat because of their wrestling ability. Right? Sometimes that comes back to bite them and they get snuck on takedowns. But um, you, see, you see wrestlers who are able to develop a, a nice right hand um, or some good power shots and start getting some, some uh, knockouts on their resume. But as much as we start to tout those knockouts as an improvement in their striking ability, they are, uh, we'd be remiss to ignore the fact that they are still technically weak in the defensive aspect. They are. Most non-natural strikers, guys who didn't grow up in the striking, Reyes is one of them, right? Like when he gets pressured, you start to see everything is like dick and dip and duck and cover. It isn't parry, the shift, you know, roll those shoulders, roll with punches. Um, it tends to be a little bit panicked. So he, in the later rounds, though he still looks like he's in himself, right? He doesn't look fatigued because he's not super fresh. Some of those weaknesses, at least in the past, start to show themselves. I would have loved to have seen the fight with um, Dan Hooker go longer, so I could see more of what we're looking at. But he was it, that that shot. You know, it's going to put it's going to put even the best fifty fivers out, and he was able to land and land it early. So so good on him. But my my concern for Chandler is can he stay um, technically proficient defensively also in the later rounds, and can uh, can Oliveira have the kind of striking output necessary because he's not necessary a natural a natural striker defensively either tends to get hit when he gets tired um but he's if you look at him and you watch him just strictly on offense you're like man this guy's got the goods and he, he can strike but when he gets tired he starts to hunt for some takedowns and some body locks and doesn't really want to be at range uh very often either so i think it's an interesting fight that that way so do you think cardio will play a factor in this? Yeah, I think it will. I think it will. And uh, I think that is definitely on, uh, on Chandler's side. So do you think that's Chandler's path to victory is putting a pace on Oliveira and hoping to get him to get sloppy and get him to make mistakes? Uh, I think he's going to come after him uh, with, with significant intensity early, get in his face, try to f- find that overhand right um, in that, and he, sometimes he hits like a shifting right that turn, becomes a hook. Um, and he's also got a mean left hook. But I think he's going to try to hit him with a power shot early and, and get him out of there um, with, some, with some effective aggression. That's my thought. But I, those, those little bony knees that uh, Oliveira has, I can see and he's real good at shifting his hips back and landing some of those. I can see those, those bothering Chandler at the same time. But you think for Oliveira, his best shot is maybe hurt him or whatever, but get it to the ground and try to submit him in some way. Yeah. That's the most that's the most logical conclusion that I can come up with for uh for Oliveira. He doesn't want to he doesn't want to stand in trade. Um I think the the physicality of Chandler can be intimidating if you kind of try to keep it like a stand up uh battle of of athleticism and just like power and strength now let's talk about the lightweight bout between tony ferguson and benil dariush which for dariush means becoming a contender if he wins this fight whereas for ferguson 
it's a chance to say he's still relevant. Now, Darius is another fighter who's been fighting for a while, but never getting near a title shot. How do you think he matches up against Tony Ferguson? I think this ver- version of Tony Ferguson he matches up incredibly well against. Um, the version of Tony Ferguson, and again, it's, it's both of them are natural grapplers, right? Darius with jiu-jitsu and Ferguson is uh, like a jiu-jitsu wrestling hybrid. Um, neither one of them, from a technical standpoint, Darius stays in better position, um, but he doesn't quite move around as much to, and to take as many chances as Ferguson, but he certainly looks more fundamentally sound from a striking perspective. Whereas Tony is sort of wild, is going to hit like some rolling cartwheel kicks and uh, or rolling whatever the Minari entry into leg locks and all. He's a wild and crazy fighter, man. He takes some chances, and he uh, he is certainly creative. This version of Tony Ferguson is coming off of a, a significant beating from Oliveira. He can try to color it any way he wants, but he got handled. He really did. Um, and Gagey put it on him as well. Um, I hear talk that he's that Ferguson has been working with Freddie Roach. I love that. Five years ago, <laughs> right? Like, let's be honest. It's a little late in the game for that. At what, 35, 36, I forget how old he is. But here, here's the difference, Sam. There are mistakes that you make because of aggression, and then there are habits. You can fix mistakes in relative short order. Habits over the course of a 30-fight professional MMA career before you decide to seek technical guidance is, should be a little concerning, right? That's when you decide to tighten up your boxing. He's actually 37, so he's actually pretty old wow. for the lightweight division. So now I'd like to see it seven years ago. Right? <laughs> I'd like to see him on his 30th birthday say, hey, Freddie, can you help me with this? Because I think with his creativity, and, and, I, and then the question becomes, how good is Freddie Roach at understanding Tony Ferguson's style? And if you watch it, a lot of the slop that you see that looks like just – um, wild and crazy technical gaffes that that's his strategy that has worked for Tony Ferguson as you get older and your chin um, is less resilient I, I don't think it's an optimal strategy and I think fighters tend to rely on on those things way too long um, and it seems to get rewarded uh, by De- from Dana White uh, and the company men so like they're the ability to, to slip and roll with shots um, and have a little more defensive footwork. You just, you're not going to, I doubt that you're going to see it at 37 years old. And if you do, those old habits will start to come back if uh, Darius starts to have any success on the feet. Even if Ferguson were to win this fight, I think going forward, what we both see is that he's a fighter who developed a style that was very much attribute based, based on his athleticism, agility, and mostly his reflexes. He had very quick reflexes. That's why he was able to do things that were unorthodox, meaning less efficient, but still get out of the way of certain moves or hit his opponents from angles that most other people wouldn't be able to. Now, the question is, Will he be able to do, or is he willing to do what Andre Arlovsky or 
Alistair Overeem did, where they did not a complete overall, but a huge overall of their game that was more appropriate for their age. And does it carry over from heavyweight to lightweight, right? That was the other thing is I can't think of any names where they were able to do it outside of heavyweight. No, very rarely. There's a saying that we had in Philly is that uh, elephants do elephant shit and hummingbirds do hummingbird shit. You know, you try to try to, try to train an upper weight like a lightweight. Sometimes it's a fool's errand uh, because if guys were that athletic, they probably at 205 plus, they probably would be doing a ball sport and getting paid a lot more. Right? Um, at least that's that's the theory in Philly. So, um, and another thing we got to touch on is Tony Ferguson also relies on his chin and his cardio. So has have his reflexes slow? Yeah, absolutely. The synaptic response in the neuromuscular junction at age 37. I don't care how built you are, how fit you are, how, how you look in practice. It's not the same thing. It's not the same as when you were, you were 35. Not the same as when you were 30. Again, we're talking about a game of inches. And once your reflexes start to slow, um, your chin may hold up when you're able to roll a quarter half or full inch off a shot but now if that quarter inch is an eighth of an inch you're sleeping and it looks like there hasn't been that much of a drop off but shots that you are eating now are shots that cause you to sleep so they aren't the same and not understanding a commitment to defense early in this game and thinking that you're just going to grab it in your later years once your reflexes have slown, you can look great on the pads. But MMA is, and I tell this to the boxers all the time, the boxing coaches, like MMA is a violent, chaotic, dynamic endeavor. There's a lot of shit you have to prepare for. Like a spinning back elbow off a real nice, like you parry his jab and you go to split it with your own and he's gone, he disappeared, that elbow comes to your jaw, you're out, man. It's not boxing. There are components of it that carry over, but you have to have that kind of dynamic eye that can break down the content in real time, parse that information and say, yeah, you're right. Like This is what he does well. This is what he doesn't do well. How can we make that fit? For That's why I love guys who have good boxing experience or good kickboxing experience early on because that visual acuity, and I think you and I talked about this on Twitter at one time, that visual acuity is tough to pick up late in life, especially if you've been habituated to the tactile, grabbing, holding, clutching. And now all of a sudden you're putting people at distance. You're not going to have a 45-year-old, no matter how many times you watch The Natural, start hitting homers uh, because he decided to pick up baseball. And, And that's because, and the reason why Robert Redford could do it was because he was playing since he was a kid. He didn't start from scratch. There was a foundation built. These folks think they can gloss over striking, right? At least the, the, the scientific aspect of boxing in terms of visual acuity, reflex, and response. You just gloss it over, watch a few YouTube videos, but you try to say the same thing about jujitsu, and those, those cult crazies get pretty pissed, <laughs> right? Um, and then if you think you can develop this kind of defensive response in real time, going forward um, at an advanced age and i just haven't seen it and if you can it's only because you have a physical outlier and again you're not going to train them as optimally as if you would have got them to buy in to that kind of defensive uh 
responsibility, training, drilling, and all that stuff early on. It's also, I think, why you'll see grapplers who only grapple, whether it's wrestling or Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And unless they played it from very young, they don't pick up other sports that require depth of field. So that vision of like depth perception, they never develop it doing grappling. So then later on, if they try to even like catch a ball, you could tell it's not something they're very confident in because it's something that their primary sport grappling never required of them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Whereas in ball sports or in boxing, you can't do that. You have to train your eye to be able to see really well. When they say the person didn't see the punch coming, it's not just because it came from a dead angle that they couldn't see coming, but also sometimes it's the person is not trained to understand how close that fist is coming to them because they started trying to learn those tells, those visual skills in their 20s or their 30s. So how can they catch up? Well, I, I'm glad you brought that point up because not many people are aware of that, right? So fundamentally, from a physical perspective, um, from a, a human perspective, based on our physiology, you should not be able to hit a 100-mile-per-hour fastball. You shouldn't. Um, it should be a fundamental impossibility unless you luck out. But what the brain has been able to do, especially in athletes who have done, have done, um, have played baseball and done ball sports their whole lives, are able to to have the brain extrapolate where that arm is, where it's going to be, and anticipate release, timing, bat speed, and connection. And that's a real skill. That is a real skill. And it's developed over years. It is honed over years and years and years. Yes, swing is just as important because you need an efficient swing. And if you have a hitch and you're going to lose timing, all those things considered. But that's sort of, I don't want to say anticipatory, but the, the brain's ability to extrapolate, interpolate data in real time that quickly is the difference between striking out and hitting a goddamn home run. That's the difference between someone you high blocking or six inch dropping and a punch missing or one like being a part of someone else's highlight reel. And those, those are real skills. But again, no offense to my MMA coaches, but you'd have to know what extrapolate, interpolate and you know, neuromuscular junction and, and mind, like mind muscle connection and visual acuity. You would need some of these, you need to know what some of these things mean. It, that kind of, Humility is rare and hubris runs rampant in mixed martial arts. So people are like, oh, we don't need that, man. We do what we do. Uh, okay. All right. All right. Now, what about Edmund Shabazian, who looked great until he ran into another veteran in Derek Brunson? How does he look to you and does he have the tools to beat Jack Hermanson? Uh, I think it's, it's a, a tall task with t- only 12 fights under your belt at this point. Um, I, I like uh, Shabazzian a lot. I really do. I think he's, he's a good young fighter with some, some solid fundamentals, and I think he's going to be good. I think Hermanson is problematic at this point in his career, um, and he just got out of there with, with Vittori, who is like a first ball fastball home run hitter. Vittoria is a first ball curveball home run hitter. Like he hits hard. He can grapple. He's in your face. Um, who else has he been in there with? Let me think. Um, Jacare, right? 
Um, he submitted David Branch, who's a Enzo Gracie black belt, and I think like a minute. So uh, if the Hermanson that comes in uh, that fought Vittori, uh, even though he got hit often, he is, his chin was really, really impressive. Um, I think it. I think it's a bad fight for Shabazian at this point in his career. I think it. it I like the kid. I watched him spar. Um, while I was walking, I was getting my oil changed at uh, in Glendale, and I walked past the gym and I saw him sparring. I was like, Jesus, man, this kid's got the goods, doesn't he? And so I'm looking, and I'm looking, and I, I try to see who any fighter um, at a Glendale Fight Club that is any good, and he comes up, and I look at the video, and lo and behold, it's him. So his skill set from a striking perspective is is there. Um, you know. 12 fights to 27 fights. I get it. You know, you, you're in the UFC, but I'm just not sure you go from Brunson, who has a troubling and unorthodox striking style, um, to Hermanson, who has a troubling and unorthodox striking style. Doesn't bring the same kind of wrestling threat, but it's still a wrestling threat. Um, and I, Hermanson, I, I believe, is probably one of those other guys that are like when we talked about not being able to see just quite how strong they are, he's he's really strong, and he's pretty quick for a big guy. And even though he has that herky jerky, but technically sound striking for the most part, um, he throws a lot of good straight punches. Where I think uh, Shabazzian can capitalize, I think Shabazzian does well when people throw single shots against him. And if you watch, if you watch Hermanson, I still wouldn't bet against Hermanson. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to caveat that. <laughs> but if you watch Hermanson, he spams a lot of single shots, a lot of single jabs, a lot of inside cut kicks, a lot of, a lot of right kicks, a right low kicks. Um, you know, but he's got a good chin and he's, he's tougher than a cheap steak, man. He's always in there. Um, another thing Shabazzian does well is he can split his opponent's guard, even if they are technically sound with their hand position. Um, he's pretty good at that. But if I were a betting man, my money's going on Hermanson. Having having seen the the problem that is Vittori in his last fight, you know, um, and been able to being grizzled enough, unless unless somehow, like, uh, unbeknownst to me, it put a lot of miles on Hermanson. I see Hermanson rebounding and um, having a fun fight against Shabazian, but not not all that difficult of a fight. I think there's an eight nine year age gap between them. Shabazian is only twenty three, but they both feel like prospects to me and that unlike some of the other fighters I mentioned, Jack Hermanson hasn't had this like back and forth win loss, win loss. And then he's making a late career bloom. He's been steadily grinding and has been right at the cusp. And even in the fights he lost, like against Marvin Vittori, he still looked very good. So he's like right there, ready to be a contender. And he's been there for a while. Now, Shabazian is not a contender but he looked like he had a lot of potential in the way he looked in his first several fights in the UFC. But the way Brunson beat him, Brunson was able to tire him out. And Jack Hermanson is known for pace. I think he set a record for uh, most number of strikes thrown in a middleweight bout. He can just spam, like you said, those single shots for 25 minutes. Yeah. And this fight isn't going to be five rounds, but I think in three rounds, he just spams even more. Yeah, and, and that, that's 
I think that's an excellent observation, is that Hermanson can fight at a, at a significantly high pace. He's got like sneaky athleticism, sneaky quickness, sneaky power, all with this like herky-jerky style that it's a little hard to get a beat on. If I were having, if I were hiring a coach that, you know, we wanted to show smooth technique, I'm, I'm throwing money at the 23-year-old kid Shabazi and putting him on the, putting him on the coaching roster because he throws with good technique. Um, but th- there are intangibles in this sport. Um, again, it is a wild, violent, chaotic endeavor. When you, you have that kind of fight dynamic, um, it's, and it can be a mixed bag from time to time. It didn't look like, and again, I have, I'd have to rewatch the Brunson fight, but I remember watching it. Um, and it didn't look like he handled that all those, those intangibles all that well, like having a fighter in your face, having a fighter that can take a shot because he landed, he looked good at times against Brunson. He had some success, but like certainly Vittori had plenty of success against Hermanson, but son of a bitch just kept going, just kept getting back up grizzled bastard man just getting up and going again and that could be that could be tough on on the psychological makeup of an individual when you drop them you lay on ground and pound you put it on them and they bounce right back up next thing you know they throw a one two that has you have to take a step back you have to compute that man that's tough and you know what you love to see in a prospect is a fighter after they get hurt they come back and not only do they come back, they come back and increase their pace. So they increase their pace after they got hurt, which is normally the opposite for a lot of other fighters. So he might not have all the cleanest techniques or he might not be the fastest fighter, but he showed something special that even not as a champion, that even some champions don't have. Mentally, he's got the goods, man. Because every time he started around, it's almost... Like I use the word compartmentalized. If you have that surge, the, the makeup of, of a skilled surgeon where you can put any slip up or mistake and knock it rattled, knock it frazzled, just put it to the back of your mind and continue at the task at hand. That's what champions are made of. Whether or not he has the physical tools to do that, I don't know because 185 is getting a little bit tougher. Um, but he's definitely a legit top five guy. And when you have the bigger guys hit as hard as they do, and he's also a significant submission threat, if the chips somehow fall a certain way and he catches a break or two, like he could be in the running for a title shot at some point. Because I feel like at 185, Gaslam was. At 185, uh, Vittori was. um, uh, Or Vittori is, right? Um, Hermanson's in the mix. There's no doubt. And I would love to see Shabazi and be there at some point. Like, again, one thing I, I like to say that I don't definitely know who's who's juicing, but I have a pretty good idea of who isn't. And I think Shabazian's a clean fighter, and I like that. I appreciate that. I really do. Um, again, not casting aspersions, saying anyone else is. So I tend to root for those guys. I root for the guys that always make weight. That's why I tend to root against Oliveira. Um, you know, coming in six pounds heavy. Like, I hate you, having been a, a, an amateur wrestler. <laughs> Always make, I never missed weight. I never missed weight. I once cramped up so bad that I almost got DQ'd. Like, you always make weight. That's the job. It's part of the job. It's part of the job. Um, so, and the, like, Dariush, another guy, workmanlike. And it, and he's, I think I would, dollars to donuts, he's natural as well. Um, completely clean, like, 
those guys that that add some virtue to the sport. It's tough to root against them, um, and that's what I think about Shabazian. But that being said, I wouldn't bet on them. <laughs> if you enjoyed this conversation and want to hear the rest, you can find part two on Patreon and Ko-Fi. South Pauls, hitting with the left. South Pauls, Sam, Paul, South Paul, South Paul.